I'm doing a spiritual journey. <laughs> I've got this. I've got. I found a healer in Hollywood, <laughs> and I'm doing these breathing exercises now, and I'm getting. It's a. It's a hardcore. The brain. Another as a capitalist show, and by exceptional popular demand, is the the macro superstar of legend. Mr. Russell Clark, who's out there with his Substack, which I think is all the W's, and then there's a Russell, and then there's an F and Clark, or maybe it's a hyphen Clark. I'll leave it for you to determine. And he's presenting himself with this remarkable piece of facial furniture. Without further ado, Russell, what's going on? Hey, Hugh, thanks for having me back. Always fun, always nice to hear your extended monologues. Please don't hold back on, on my back. Russell is nothing but cantankerous. I've just been pleading with myself that the challenge with these escapades, these macro flights of fantasy, is to somehow get the thing more sparring, like to be jabbing, rather than these desperately long monologues. I think the problem is both Russell and I have these fantastic imaginations and i suspect we're actually quite lonely souls and so when we get these portals and these opportunities to speak we can't contain ourselves but russell is on because he took me down he's taking me down on my tilts on my tlt what is tlt tlt is is an etf it's a kind of if you will a low-cost do-it-yourself means of getting exposure to the very long maturities of the U.S. Treasury market, the kind of 20 years plus. Who, you might ask, who would be interested in, in, in such a futile exposure? Me. And, and of course, Russell's here to add his masterly, scholarly, ma- macro take on why, again, I'm losing the plot. Why am I losing the plot, Russell? I think the world has changed you. And and what I find about the sort of TLT, there's actually two problems with it. One is political, and another one is structural to do more technically driven. So we're going to talk about politics first, and I'll give you the technical stuff as well. Technical stuff's a bit more boring, but I find interesting. And I think, you know, what I've been, for me, the TLT, and I understand why you like TLT, you think credit is going to contract. Commodity prices coming down, unemployment's very low, can only rise. And so it's a very deflationary environment. And the Fed, probably with the yield curve inverting, the bond market is saying the Fed's going to probably stop raising rates soon. And so TLT is a way of locking in what are relatively high interest rates on that. That's probably the roughly your bull argument. And what I am saying is that the world that you and I know. The world that's been in existence since 1980 is this deflationary world where what we've had is that every time we think there's going to be inflation, we've had a recession or something else, and then it just drops back and we get back into a sort of deflationary environment. And so that's what it's been like for the last 30 or 40 years. Now, what I'm saying and what I've been arguing and why I think TLT looks bad uh, as a long idea here, is that the reason we had a deflationary world, the reason why deflation kept coming along, was that governments were elected to create deflation. What do I mean by that? 
And so I started off as an emerging market investor. What you always used to get before every election in, let's say, somewhere like India, is the government would come along and give every public servant a 20% pay increase. And then you knew the election was about to be called because they suddenly just gone out and jacked up all the money. And what you see now, what I've certainly seen, is that no government has been elected if they're going to promise to give public servants a 20% pay increase for since I was a teenager at least. And, you know, so like even in the UK, for example, even though the NHS has done a fabulous job during COVID, and it's struggling to get above above inflation pay increases because government policy has been that way. And that's really truly the amazing thing about the world we live in. So you think in a sort of comparative democratic elections, government policy should be about giving away as much free money as possible. That's where we had this idea of inflation, particularly in the 60s and 70s, could governments would continue to increase spending. And then with the election of Thatcher and Reagan, we went to, you know, what government should just try and be small, try not to increase wages. And so then we became completely reliant on the credit cycle for growth. And every time credit got too extended, it would then blow up and we'd have a deflationary burst. What I'm trying to say is now since COVID and really since sort of 2016, election of Trump and Brexit, the political cycle has changed. And now if we do get a slowdown in growth, I would expect governments to increase spending. And even more than that, what I expect to see happening and what I think we're really seeing happening is that growth is no longer credit-driven, it's wage-driven, right? Government's going to raise wages at doing policies to help wages grow. And so growth is going to be very strong. Uh, and to try and keep real wages high, central banks are going to be forced to raise interest rates far more aggressively than they already are. So when I look at TLT yielding, what, three, something like that, the long end, and so steeply inverted, being a bit deeply inverted to current Fed rate, to me, it looks like a very bad macro trade. I'm going to let you have a talk now, Hugh. Okay. Very bad macro trade incorporated will respond to you. Is it with you guys? So, joking aside, I came to a realization, I'm not sure when, but only like maybe within the last two years, that I didn't understand the world. That everything, every orthodoxy that I'd come to believe and accept. And I know I can be out there, but I'm talking about the orthodoxy, the economic texts, the smart, wise money makers that both you and I would be aware of, we would follow, we would respect their calls. We don't have to agree with all of them. Policy making, and then the engagement of the global macro sector, which sometimes comes in and says, you got this wrong and positions get taken. Yeah. We saw that. We saw a very small band of people very famously do that in 2006, 2007 with the mortgage market. Yeah. They kind of saw the future and the return was astonishing. But I've come to a realization that our macro universe changed at the end of the previous century. It always still freaks me out when I talk about centuries that our life courses two centuries. It makes me feel desperately old. But what happened at the end of the previous century was this 
profound, startling, dramatic and significant economic crash in those Asian economies that you'd be very familiar with. The poster child of the bet noir would have been Thailand and the crash, the thundering fall in the Thai bat. And that, of course, coincided with this point where China, which had been manifesting these profound changes, was reaching a point where it was entering onto the world stage and the submission to the admission to the World Trade Organization. And let's cast our minds back. Back then, China was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I had a, we were going to publish, oh, I guess you're watching this afterwards, so we will have published the interview with Brad Stetzer, the fellow of the Council of Foreign Relations. And you're just saying here, in the year 2000, the Chinese GDP was, let's call it $1 trillion. The US was circa maybe 15. And if we go forward to, to present, I want to say US GDP 23, China 15, 16. So it's been the rise of the rise of China. But China was very much persuaded by this, by the disaster which had befallen its economic neighbors. And more so by the consequences to the political leadership. We saw Suharto in Indonesia, we, they were all cleared out. And I want to say to you that China changed the rules of engagement. It was almost as, if you will, if we talk about the engagement or the contract which governs the behavior between sovereign nations and the interface being trade, great sovereign nations. So the US, China, Europe, we had a rule of conduct governed by, by gold and up until the late 1920s, we had bread and woods, but really we had the euro-dollar system. And really, I want to say, dovetailing at the end, we had this Chinese trade system. And I think that has changed every aspect of macro. So I've done a very long monologue there. I want you to reflect on that and just give me initially what your comeback on that. I guess you're going to say what changed, but what changed do you think I'm talking about? It's so odd because I'm looking at all exactly the same things. Asian financial crisis, the rise of China, how China's behavior has changed. And I understand where you're coming from, except what I think is the change in Chinese behavior is actually super inflationary. So let me give you my interpretation and then we'll go and we'll go from there. And if we take it back even further, go back to, for me, I looked at where did inflation in the 60s and 70s come from? And the way I look at it, this is the bigger picture of why I think TLT is a bad trade, is that in the sort of neoclassical economics that existed with the gold standard prior to 1970, was that you had the gold standard and that was what created price stability. Or less. And so if a country wanted to be linked to the gold standard, it needed to keep its interest rates relatively high. And then we had the Great Depression. And then you, what we had during the Great Depression was this sort of bigger line neighbor currency devaluations, right? So one country would devalue, they'd benefit for a little period, and someone else would devalue against them as they all tried to get ahead of this deflationary bust. But in fact, if you devalued, you only then got another country to devalue again. And what stopped that cycle was basically FDR came in after World War II. So that's it. 
U.S. not going to devalue. And actually, we're going to implement a whole range of policies that is going to restrict production. So various government-mandated cartels, and we're going to make sure that government policy is all about raising real wages. And so what you had was minimum wage was increased, and then you had this sort of inflationary pressure because as wages were going up, people had more money, they were buying more stuff, and prices kept going higher and higher, right? And that was the inflation cycle, which ended in the 70s when inflation got out. And so what we then saw in the 70s was the end of FDR policies and this idea that competitive devaluation was okay. And what that for me, and the way I interpreted that was that suddenly from the sort of 70s from Nixon onwards, getting real wages down and becoming competitive and keeping real wages at the lowest level possible became policy for everyone. And even the Asian financial crisis, we had the same thing is that fixed exchange rates became uncompetitive as the US dollar appreciated. These Asian currencies, Asian countries had inflation and they devalued and that created a deflationary burst and that continued through. And that's just been the cycle that we've been in for a long time. Now, what has changed is that in 2015, 2016, China should have devalued. Okay, its wage costs had gone up like this. It was creating, it was seeing capital outflows. And what would have been standard policy since 1980 at least would be to devalue, to regain competitiveness. And this would set up another cycle of competitive devaluations. Bond yields would have gone ever lower and lower. And I personally was positioned that way. I even owned long day at JGBs at the time, which make TLT look like a safe haven type trade. Not safe haven, but like a super conservative. JGBs is what you really buy if you truly believe this story. You could buy for the year JGBs at a reasonable price given their history if you really buy this trade. That is the real money trade. JGBs unhedged if you really buy into that deflation story. And what I'm trying to say is China and she had become like the new FDR. They went, you know what? We are not going to devalue. We're going to close the capital account. We're going to force banks to lend, right? And we are going to be the rock around which the inflation cycle is going to return. And why do they do that? Because they are actually really a heart socialist and want to have full employment and rising wages. And actually for them, with a sort of in a strategic battle with the US for dominancy, building the US, building up the Chinese consumer makes a lot of sense. So for me, as long as China doesn't devalue, as long as it continues to promote the interests of labor over capital, we are in an inflationary environment. And and that is what I'm seeing with bonds, what I'm seeing with gold, and what I'm seeing with a whole range of assets. Unless Chinese policy changes, I think we're in an inflation cycle. Okay, I'm telling you. So whilst you were speaking, I'm actually really excited because once you was, I was listening attentively, disagreed with. It's amazing how we can look at the same data and draw. It's not amazing. It's like two, one very bright person, one other person can look at the same data points and draw different inferences. Where do I begin? But first and foremost. I want to say that China was, or the rise of China was a deflation machine. 
And the recent data fills me with dread because that machine is roaring back into life. Because I'm going to make, maybe I'm just going to draw bubbles just now. I'm going to do another bubble. And I'm going to take, I'm going to go at odds to your notion of this beggar thy neighbor. I think beggar thy neighbor with regard to trade policies is vitally important to an understanding of where we are today. And you relate to the beggar thy neighbor malady to the 1930s, to the competitive devaluations, right, which were set off by the profound contraction in economic growth. I am going to come back to you and say that the beggar thy neighbor policy was actually conducted. It was at its max in the 1920s. And the greatest offender was actually the United States of America. I found a chart and I'm going to try and bring it up. But beforehand, I want to say this regulation of sovereign behavior. Okay, In the 1920s, and I'm going to pause there, regulation of behavior. Economics is the study of equilibrium or the pursuit or the much needed pursuit or restoration of equilibrium. And the drama and the profits, I think, that we have participated in have been the events when we've been at disequilibrium and we've had to move back. We had regulation of behavior in order to achieve equilibrium. That broke owing to cheating, if you will, silly term. Now, so the regulation in the 1920s on the gold standard was that a country like America, which was the China of its time, fantastic productivity, fantastic, particularly relating to that time, innovations in, in, in chemicals, telecommunication, you name it. And of course, a capital stock which hadn't been devastated by the First World War. And so America ran persistent trade surpluses. Now, the system was set up whereby America then would be the beneficiary or the recipient of dollar flows from other sovereign nations to make up for the deficit. So this would be the capital account. And the theory, and it's a very plausible logic, was that this gold, and we could call it high-powered money, it would find a home in the private banking vaults of the private sector, the banking sector. And therefore, that would be a liability of the banks, and it would encourage them to expand assets, which is credit creation. Now, the cheating, I don't like this term, but the obstacle which was created by the New York Federal Reserve and Benjamin Strong. You've read, I've read, you're the gods of finance, the Lakid Ahmed book, a glorious book. And of course, the conundrum was, here's the rule, but the application and practice would mean unleashing fuel onto this profound economic domestic boom, which was already in full throttle in America. And so the US, again, I'm going to use this term cheated, they sterilized. And they, they sterilized the gold and they kept it back. They denied it from the private sector. Reasonable behavior. But in the pursuit of equilibrium, what happened was the UK was on its ass. Germany was on its ass. Et al. Okay. And it needed the salvation of profound domestic US demand buying things from overseas. And US imports would expand 
overseas exports would expand and you would find a path to equilibrium. And that failed to happen. So the system became, if you will, entropic and it just, it broke rather than adjusting. Okay. That's where I, that was the beggar thy neighbor. The US was beggaring the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom came very close to a Bolshevik revolution because all of the force was felt on the price of labor, which is the predominant price in an economy. And so the only force, if you were not willing to allow domestic US demand to expand, then overseas wages had to fall to, again, create this dynamic equilibrium back to the center. So you say something to that, and I'll try and bring up my chart. Okay, so I'm going to... I take everything you say on, I think, in that analysis of the 20s made a lot of sense. Where I would think is really interesting, though, is that, and when I read the sort of economic histories of Eric Hopsbaum, who talks about that period, and the most profound effect that the US had, particularly on Europe, was the opening up of these vast agricultural plains, which created really an agricultural depression within the UK and within Europe. So suddenly you had this huge amount of agricultural produce flooding back into world markets, which kept prices very depressed. And the way I read it is basically food prices and labor prices are quite closely connected. So what you can earn off the land is a good driver of where the equilibrium in wages is. Okay, So that's the sort of industry way of generating what you've just described, what happened in the 20s. Now, this is where, when I run it towards today and China, is China an agricultural powerhouse? Yes, it is. However, China, unlike the US, is turning into a net importer of food. And it's doing that because it's running out of land, it's running out of labor, and now Chinese food prices are higher than world food prices. So unless China does dramatically devalue, and they have committed to not devaluing, China is actually acting as an upward pressure on food prices. Other products is different. Other products are different, but on food prices, it's acting as an upward pressure. And if you go through the history of inflation and the history of politics, when food prices rise, if wages don't rise, you start getting some serious problems, which you're starting to see in the UK, by the way. The most strikes since at least the 70s, now in the UK, and that's spreading around. So what I'm trying to say is the analysis you're giving is correct. It's just that with the Chinese phenomenon, right, we are used to it exploring cheap Lego pieces, cheap cars, cheap furniture. What I'm saying is in the last few years, China has turned from being a net food, actually a net food exporter. It provides a lot of food, like vegetables and fruit to Japan, for example. It's now become the world's biggest importer of corn, the biggest importer of beef, the biggest importer of pork, biggest importer of soy, biggest importer of crude palm oil. And so now China has changed this upward pressure on food prices. And if you go and look at food price indices and just food price indices, they are rising at the highest rate since at least the 70s, and they continue to rise. And that, for me, is why central banks will be under severe pressure from governments and from the public to keep raising rates and why I think TLT is a bad idea. 
Okay, I'm glad you said TOT was a bad idea. <laughs> so guys, changes are afoot. The cost of living crisis. No, it's not that. I'm being greedy. Maybe. No, it's Ayn Rand. It's objectivism. I'm daring you to, to pay for the asset capitalist service. That's what I used to do with clients. I dare you to give me money. Asset capitalists, I dare you to give me money. We're introducing a Patreon page, Patreon backslash Hugh Hendry. You can see the details, the links are there. To join, become a member of the tribe. Macro has changed, economics has changed. It changed about 25 years ago. No one realizes you'll be seeing that. You see that time and time again with my interviews. You, I think you see it with policymakers. If I'm right, you're going to see it in the rise in the price of the TLT. China is a deflationary machine. Join the tribe and understand why. And if that deflation machine continues, then the price of the most sensitive deflationary asset in the world, US Treasuries, is set to explode higher. If you believe something's good, you should pay for it. I'll let you decide. There are only five people who understand money out there. Join the tribe. Pay your dues. And maybe you will learn how global macro actually works rather than all this nonsense we see on television, we see in tweets, and we see in podcasts.